You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, we have two readings from the Word of God. And the first one is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 19. We'll read the verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given you, given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. We turn now to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, the verses 18 through 25. This too is the word of the Lord. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. 
Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We begin a new section there entitled Our Justification, and just for the sake of context that you know that we've just completed the section about the Apostles' Creed, the, the contents of our faith as Christians. And so that's what Lord's Day 23 is working with as it continues on in the Catechism. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I'm righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the question before us this afternoon is, who is the man? Who is the man? This is a question that we are constantly being asked and that we are constantly asking ourselves because of the nature of who we are as human beings, especially as who we are in Adam, our first father. That is, we are constantly being asked this question and asking ourselves this question because we are by nature built for worship, built for worship, And yet at the same time, full of pride. We're built for worship. It's, it's in us. We're, we were created for this purpose to worship. But yet, through the fall into sin, we are full of selfish pride. We are built for worship. We long for someone or something to put our trust in, to worship. We will worship Something. Have you ever noticed how crazy people get about athletics? People running around, throwing a ball around, hitting a ball, whatever it is that they're doing, kicking it. People go crazy about sports. What is it all about sports that makes people go so crazy? Well, certainly a big part of it, of the craziness, is that longing to put your trust to put your faith into something, whether it's your man, your athlete, or your team that's better than all the other teams, so that that person or that team can give you some satisfaction in your life when they win, or when they almost win, 
or along the way to winning? Or have you ever considered why the entertainment industry is it seems to be something like a romantic comedy factory, whether books or movies or whatever, these, the romance is, is so prominent in the entertainment industry. Is it not because in a woman's heart, there is this desire for a hero, for the perfect guy to come along and make things better? And if they can't expect this perfect guy to come along and make things better in their real life, well, then an escape for two hours so that he can do it in an imaginary world We'll just have to do. We're built for worship. That's how God created us. But at the same time that we're built for worship, because of the fall into sin of Adam, and we'll consider that more a little later, but because of the fall into sin, we are also full of pride. As much as we long to make someone else great, to put our trust in someone else, there's always something inside of us that's telling us, well, that person's no better than I am. They, they think they're so great. I'm pretty great myself. He's not the man. She's not so great. I am. Sure, those athletes are good at sports, but what about their personal life? It's probably a big mess. Sure, that woman appears to have it all together, but I'm sure underneath she's an anxious wreck. And so we have this conflict in our lives. And the question that we are always asking ourselves or stating to boast in ourselves is, who is the man? Now we turn to our reading. John 19. Verse 5. We've read it together so you know the context. You know that the Lord Jesus Christ has been brought to testify before Pilate. You know that he's been flogged. You know that he's had a crown of thorn placed on his head and a purple robe put over his shoulders. And then Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowds. And he says in verse 5 to the crowds, Here is the man. Who's the man? Pilate states it before the crowds there. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, communicates it to us. Here is the man. At one moment, Jesus had been worshipped by these crowds. And now, mere days later, they have turned on him in their selfish pride. Because he didn't turn out to be the guy, the man, that they thought he was going to be. But yet Pilate says, behold the man. And when he presents Jesus with those words and says, here is the man, behold the man, look, the man. He is saying words that are full of deep truth. Words so deep that Pilate probably did not understand the depths of them. But certainly John, inspired by the Spirit, as he communicates this, does. The depths of these words. Because here is the man. Adam. The second man. The second Adam. The one who has come because the first man, the first man who was presented with, behold the man, and God saw what he had made, and behold, it was very good. God had presented this man to the world 
Adam. And now the second man comes because the first man had failed. Yet as Pilate presented him, the sons of Adam condemned him in their pride. But John has communicated this to us so that as we waver between worship and pride, we might cast off our pride and place our worship upon its true and rightful king. We are called to behold the man. As we consider justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, we do so considering the question before us this afternoon, who is the man for you, for us? Who is the man? We'll consider three men, Adam, Christ, and Abraham. First of all, we consider Adam, and as we do so, we consider Adam's sin. Question 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, how are you righteous before God? And then the answer states that I am righteous only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, but then it moves on immediately And it starts talking about a situation that is not characterized at all by righteousness. Notice there in the answer, answer 60. I am righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ. And then it goes on stating that my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. What's going on with this answer? I thought this question and answer, we're going to be all about righteousness, how we are righteous before God. And no sooner does the answer begin than it's telling us about how unrighteous we actually are. What's all this talk about sin and guilt and failure? Well, it has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And in order to understand how it has everything to do with Jesus Christ, we need to understand how this has everything to do with Adam. With Adam. That is, Jesus Christ did not pop onto the scene suddenly, out of nowhere, announcing himself to be the Savior of the world, doing miracles and all the other things that he did in his lifetime. Jesus wasn't suddenly sent to the world as God realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'd better send a Savior, not at all. Jesus Christ came into history. The eternal Son of God came into history as a result of the history that includes the very first man, Adam. The history that includes the very first man, Adam, and the terrible history of mankind that has followed ever since his fall into sin. In order to understand who God presents to us when he shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand who who he presents us when he shows us ourselves outside of Jesus Christ. That's who we see in Adam. And that's why we consider Adam in the first place this afternoon. The man that stares us in the face from the inside of the spiritual mirror when we look at ourselves outside of Jesus Christ is none other than the first man who fell into sin, Adam. 
Adam was the first created man. We know that from Genesis 1 and 2. The man that God first made in his own image. In his own image. Adam was made in perfect righteousness and holiness. Notice those words. They resonate with this Lord's Day. Adam was made in perfect righteousness and holiness. Although my conscience now accuses me that I've ne- I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Adam, when he, was, when he was created, was not created that way. He was not created that way. We know from the things that followed that he also had the ability to sin. But the ability to sin did not discount his ability to do What was right and what was fair and what was just and what was equitable in every circumstance. Adam, in every aspect of his life, in every way, could always love, could always do what God required of him. His experience was full of life and of love. Now, let me ask you. Is that what your experience is full of? Always doing what God commands of me. Always following, finding myself the ability to to willingly and cheerfully submit myself to all of God's commandments in every way, in every area of my life, all the time. No. The correct answer to the question that I pose to you is no. I don't find that in myself. I don't find find that in myself at all. Why not? Well, it has everything to do with Adam. Adam was created good, but he fell into sin. And when Adam, the first man, fell into sin, he plunged all of us who were born after him into spiritual and physical death. Adam is the father of all mankind. Eve is the mother. And we are the corrupt, sinful progeny. We are the corrupt, sinful children of Adam and Eve. We cannot help it. We share in their fall. That's the reality into which we are born. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's the reality into which Cason is born. But there's good news. So Adam was righteous. And he fell into spiritual and physical death. And the question is, as we consider Adam and his fall, why? Why did this happen? Why did he do this? Who would choose a barren wasteland of sin and death, an experience full of sin and death, when they already have an experience full of life and love? He had communion with God. He had perfect communion with his wife. Everything was perfect for Adam. He lived in the Garden of Eden. Why would he choose sin? Why would he plunge himself and all of his children into the misery that has followed after his fall into sin. It doesn't make any sense. Who would choose that? No one would, right? Well, wrong. Adam did. But he did because he didn't see his choice as the choice that I just presented, even though that's the way things went. Why did Adam sin? Well, it wasn't because he desired to go from life and love to a barren wasteland of sin and death to an experience of misery. It was because he, in fact, wanted something more than what he had. He wanted something more. 
He wanted to have an exalted position that was not his to have. The devil suggested a result to Eve, and she subsequently told Adam what he could could not resist, the possibility of becoming like God. Imagine the possibilities. Becoming like God. That is the option that Satan showed to them. Adam did not desire the much lower position that he ended up with after the fall into sin. His original goal was more, more honor, more glory, more status, the kind of exalted position that was only enjoyed by God himself. Adam grasped that equality with God. And that grasping continues today. That's the situation of all who are born into Adam at this time. Although they participate in every way in this reality of sin and death, yet at the very same time, we have this dream in our sinful nature, this goal of becoming more than who we are, of being in control, of being worthy of glory and honor, of status. That's what Adam grasped at. And that's what all who are born into Adam are born into grasping at for themselves. The question is, who is the man? Who is the man with whom you align yourself? Who is the man in whom you place your faith? The natural course of our lives is to align ourselves with Adam. We already participate in his sin and misery. It's natural for us to participate in his grasping pride as well. Are we not tempted to think much of ourselves or to exalt ourselves? And there is so much of that going on today. So much chest thumping. So much declaring that we are great. In all sorts of areas, we're prone to think of ourselves as as stronger or smarter or morally superior to what we actually are. If we see someone who's stronger than we are, we think, well, I must be smarter than them. And if they're smarter than we are, we think, well, I must be morally superior to them. And if they're morally superior, well, I probably have the other two on them at that time. We need to be first. We look at others and we tell ourselves that we're better. And we strive to act like God, to control and to create and to provide. We have a God complex within us. And it's pervasive throughout our whole culture, especially as our culture rejects worshiping God and must turn to worshiping something else. And why not worship ourselves? We are great, are we not? Well, the presence of this God complex that exists in our culture and in our own hearts is not surprising. It's a direct result of Adam and of the fall into sin. The result, however, of Adam's pride, of that grasping, was not the exalted position that he thought he was gaining when he ate that fruit. This is the way of sinful pride, right? It promises you something. It promises something that is going to be so good, so great, better than what we already have, better perhaps than what we deserve. 
But then it delivers something entirely different. Delivers something else. The result for Adam was not that he became like God. But rather, it was death. Spiritual and physical death. And a painful, sorrow-filled, striving existence for all the humanity that followed after him. And it's the same today. A lot of chest-thumping going on, a lot of declaring that we are great, but a lot of broken lives underneath the surface. Brothers and sisters, this is the situation that we must find ourselves in as we come to Jesus Christ. Or we will not come to Jesus Christ. We need to recognize this tendency in ourselves, this tendency to thump our own chest, this tendency to think of ourselves great. But then we need to come to realize that this is in opposition to God and his will. In fact, the more that you study God's word, the more that you study God's law, the more that you measure yourself with the standard that God gives for, for righteousness and holiness, the more you realize that you're a lawbreaker in every sense of the word. And probably in ways that you've never even considered you are. Have you ever had that experience? You've read the Bible. You think you know what's going on there. And then you realize yet another way in which you break God's law. A way you didn't even know before, but you've been doing for years. We come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul came to. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? The Christian recognizes their allegiance with Adam. Recognizes that allegiance within themselves, this activity of the old sinful nature. And this nature is accusatory and unable and inept. It tells us we can't keep God's law and it follows through. Yes, we can't. But... This is what we must remember. The Christian is the one who moves on from this. Who recognizes that in ourselves, but who does not stay there. Who does not wallow in their sin. Who does not take pride in their sin. The Christian is the one who moves beyond this. The Christian who is the one who recognizes in themselves, yes, many times over again, that they're sinful. But then realizes that this is not the final statement about themselves. This is not the final judgment that God has given to me that I must wear for the rest of my earthly days. As a Christian, I am at one moment a wretched sinner. But at the very same moment, I am not. Because I am a redeemed saint. I am a wretched sinner, but at the very same moment, I am not. Because I am redeemed. How does that happen? How is that possible? Behold the man. Behold the man, Jesus Christ. Everything changes because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his perfect obedience to the extent of giving up his own life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The sins that still cling to us in Adam. Adam plunged humanity into a life of suffering and death 
Because that is the wages of sin. And Jesus Christ came, the son of Adam, completely in every way, yet without sin. And he suffered and died under sin. But for Christ, it was different because he was not a sinner. And because God had appointed him to be our Messiah, to be our king, to be our head to be our representative, to be our high priest, our Christ, so that when he would come, a son of Adam, and live his life completely in obedience to all of God's commands, keeping all of them, breaking none of them, loving God in every way, he could do so for us, for you, and for me. Adam pledged humanity into sin and death. Christ, the righteous one, reversed the effects of Adam's fall as his entire life culminated in one act of righteousness when he gave himself sinless, perfect, innocent in God's eyes, yet he gave himself over to death on the cross and was punished by God as a guilty sinner. In our reading in John 19, Pilate presents Jesus and he says, here is the man. His words are full of meaning. Consider the scene for a moment. Here's a man standing beside Jesus. He's been beaten and bruised, mocked and scorned. He's being accused of the, by the Jews of being this great threat to Caesar's kingdom, Caesar's empire. And yet standing before the crowd without a single supporter among them, no one to testify on his behalf, no one to stand up for him and say, this is wrong. This man is innocent of any crime without a single man to fight for him. And he himself has offered no resistance. He's been humiliated in several different ways. This is the man who stands before the crowd as Pilate presents him. It's like Pilate is mocking the Jews who had handed him over. Here, Pilate, here's this man. He's a threat to the empire. And so Pilate presents him before them, showing them that this man is no threat at all. And says to them, here is your man. Here's this great man who supposedly is a king. But yet it was precisely there, in his suffering, in his rejection, that he was truly the man. The first man ever to obey all of God's commands. Kept every one of them. Wasn't inclined to sin against any of them. And the very sufferings that he wore in his crown of thorns, his purple robe, his bloodied back, were the sufferings of atonement. The sufferings that were necessary for the Messiah to experience because he would suffer them on behalf of God's people for the sake of their sin. For that atonement to be complete, it would be necessary for this man, Jesus, to die, to be judged as guilty and cursed by God while hanging on a tree. And so it was that Pilate presented the man, the king of kings himself. And the people cry out with one voice, crucify him. And so Jesus, the man, our savior, submitted. 
He didn't thump his chest in pride. He didn't even stand up for what was rightfully his. But he bore the cross of Calvary in deep humility, obedience, righteousness, and love. He did it not for himself. He did it for his people, and he did it for his father. The man to follow, the man in whom to place our trust is not Adam, in spite of the chest thumpers of the world. It is Christ. Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped like Adam, but instead made himself nothing. Becoming a man, becoming a servant of man, becoming a sacrifice for man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ accepted that guilty sentence. He suffered and died because that is the very sentence that we in our sins deserve. The result of our sins is death and judgment. Jesus was judged guilty so that we might be judged by the Father for all eternity to be innocent. To be justified in Jesus Christ means that rather than remaining with that guilty verdict over your head, your sins are instead forgiven. Yes, Cason is born as a sinner. But those promises of baptism are the promises of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we spoke about in the form. That's what we've prayed for him. That his sins would be washed away. And we are granted the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as if it is our own, our very own. As if we ourselves had done all that he had done on our behalf. That which we could never do. That which if we would even want to do, we would find ourselves hopelessly inept, unable to do. He has done. It's granted to us as if we ourselves had done the very thing that he has done for us suffered for sins, died for them. Innocent in every way. When your allegiance is with him, everything changes. Instead of joining the self-satisfied chest thumpers of the world, you repent. You say, I'm no longer with them. You repent of that in yourself. You recognize it and repent and believe that only Jesus has obeyed all of God's laws, kept all of them, and was inclined to love God and his neighbor in everything that he did. The gospel makes us not into self-satisfied, proud, chest-thumping macho men, but rather men and women who boast in the Lord, who boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified through the blood brings us to humility. It's only the perfect satisfaction, righteousness of ho- and holiness of Jesus Christ that is our righteousness before God. Incredibly humbling. But it is the path to joy and to life everlasting. And so it is that we move from Adam to Christ. This is the message of the Bible that God declares. There is no life in Adam. There is life in Christ. But the question is, how do you move from one to the other? 
And so we consider one more man, Abraham, the last point, so that we can continue to place our faith firmly in Christ. We need to consider Abraham briefly as the last point so that our pride doesn't outflank us. So that our pride doesn't find another way of boasting in ourselves. Okay, not in our works can we boast, but maybe in our faith we can. No, we need to consider Abraham and what the Apostle Paul wrote about him in Romans chapter 4. Justification is by faith alone. And the man who illustrates that is Abraham. And Paul speaks about him in Romans chapter 4. Perhaps you would like to turn there. We'll go straight to our reading in Romans chapter 4, which begins at verse 18. Now, for Paul's audience, as he wrote this letter to the Romans, Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, was a towering figure. He loomed large in the mind of the Jew in the first century A.D. In fact, he's loomed large in the minds of Jews of all times. He is the great patriarch. He was the one who left his life in Ur to follow the command of God. He was the friend of God who dined with God himself. The one who was so bold as to plead with God for mercy over Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was the father of many nations. And Abraham was the father of the chosen people of God, Israel. God's people had come from his line. And ultimately then, so had the Messiah. And so you might be tempted to say, well, who is the man? It's Abraham. What a mighty man of faith Abraham was. But he was not. That is what Paul will point out for us. This whole section of Romans 4 is to say that Abraham is not the man, but rather that Jesus Christ is. Abraham shared in the sin of Adam, and so Abraham could not pretend to stand on the merits of his own obedience. Abraham did not say Abraham was the man, and neither should we. But what marked Abraham's life was that he did not trust in himself. Rather, that he had faith in God and in God's promises to him. Verse 18, Abraham, against all hope, believed. And then in verse 19, without weakening, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Abraham realized his own weakness. His body was as good as just as good as dead. Thump his own chest. His chest couldn't bear it at his age. So what would he do? Despair? No. Abraham looked outside of himself and trusted in God's promise says that he was strengthened, verse 20. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And so we're called not to look at ourselves and not even to look at our own faith, but we're called to look at the one who has fulfilled all the promises of God The one who fulfills the promises of baptism. The one who fulfills the promises given in God's word. Faith recognizes that 
the weakness that is inherent in ourselves as we are in Adam. Faith recognizes our own sin and puts its trust in God outside of ourselves. And we have all the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was delivered over for our sins. And Jesus Christ was raised up for our justification. It's through the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is forgiveness of sins for you. Through what he has done, there is forgiveness for you. And Christ's work is effective and sufficient to be your righteousness in the judgment of God. You can receive this righteousness and make it your own by faith, by trusting in what Christ has done. Faith clings to Jesus' work alone and rests in Him unceasing. Faith casts aside pride in ourselves. Faith looks to what has been accomplished by the true King, the one who Himself is our satisfaction, our righteousness, and our holiness. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.